Good morning, once Good morning. again. <laughs> we are kind of listing to this side a little bit today, aren't we? It's like a sailboat. Uh-huh. All right, uh, before we start, once again, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about this conference we have coming up. Uh, a number of you have signed up, several of you have not, and I want to talk to you. <laughs> um, I just really, once again, want to encourage everybody to uh, try to make time for this. Uh, it's less, if you think of it in terms of total time, it's less than 20, you know, a 24-hour cycle, right? You know, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, and it's it's over. Uh, and I think that your investment in those, you know, three sections of a couple hours each will pay incredible dividends. Uh, if for some reason that you know you are not online, or uh, maybe you're here for the first time and you hear a little bit about this, there's a flyer that's out in the hallway that talks about it. Uh, but it's a conference that really fo focuses on. Your, you know, who you are in Christ and, and what it's like to live a life having that as your identity. And so many of us have identities that are false, right, that are not really what they were intended to be for a whole variety of reasons. And so, um, you know, if you don't receive our emails or if that's something that is uh, interesting to you, just tell me uh, and we'll get you signed up for it. There's no cost. Um, we're going to provide lunch on Saturday, so you don't even have to leave to go off and find anything. So, uh, yeah, it's 7 o'clock Friday night till whenever we finish, which probably be like 9, 9.30. Then 9.30 uh, to roughly 12, 12.30 on Saturday, and then 1.30 to... It's a shorter session Saturday afternoon, so 1.30 to, I don't know, say 3.30 or 4.00 approximately because part of what we do with these is is uh, Phil who's going to be our presenter is very sensitive to what the spirit might be wanting to do and if it's something other than what he planned to teach then that's what we'll do so it's, it's uh, sort of exciting in that sense too that you know you may not maybe just fun to come and watch whatever God's going to do that day so uh, anyway really encourage you to like I said let me know you can let John know we'll get you signed up and it's Friday night, this coming Friday, and then, yeah, then, sat then Saturday. Okay. So, last week, we talked about the uh, first part of Chapter 5 in Revelation. And what did we cover? Well, we said the sort of the big idea of all of that was this one, that, uh, that Jesus, who is... It's talked about in Revelation as the crucified and resurrected lion slash lamb is the one who's worthy to carry out the, the plan that God had to redeem the world. So he's the one, remember there was the scroll that's presented and it has seven seals. And no one was found worthy to be able to open that until Jesus, right? And so then Jesus is the one who can actually open this and let, let loose what God had intended um, all along. And some of the insights that we, we took away from that was, first of all, was that 
We're helpless without a Savior because of that very reason. There's nobody who's worthy to open these scrolls, right? We all have sin in our lives. We even made the point that the priests who offered the sacrifices in the old uh, Jewish uh, way of doing things really wouldn't be worthy either because they had sin in their life. You know, they tried to purify themselves as best they could before they would do this, but nonetheless, there's still it's still there. So we're helpless without uh, a Savior. Second point we made was this idea that <clears throat> God's just not sitting around doing nothing, uh, watching people suffer. You know, and, and that's a, uh, unfortunately a sort of a popular idea that some have about God, that you know, it's sort of the idea that he just wound the world up, uh, put all the pieces in place, then let go and sort of sat back and just, well, I wonder what's going to happen. No, that's not how it works. Um, there's a plan. And Revelation is what talks about the fact that this plan has been in place from the very beginning, right? So God is not sitting around passively twiddling his thumbs. He's very actively involved in your life and my life and is, uh, and there is a, a, a reason and a rationale to all of this. And then finally, just kind of to reiterate what we talked about in the first point, that Jesus alone is the one who's worthy of accomplishing this, that nobody else can. So, won't belabor that. So, now we're going to move on to really the second half of chapter 5. And so, after Jesus, who's the Lamb, takes the scroll from the hand of the Father, the focus kind of now shifts to, uh, to worship uh, and, and to the worship of all these heavenly beings. Um, and the Lamb, because he is worthy, because he demonstrated that worthiness at the cross, what, that, what results in that is that he is now worthy of receiving worship exactly as the Father does, right? Remember, the Lamb is seated on the throne with the Father, and so uh, he is receiving this worship right alongside God. And that unity of God and the Lamb is going to continue through the rest of the book. So, so through the rest of Revelation, we're going to see that, that unity come into play. And this kind of concludes this, uh, this well, this section will conclude that whole throne room vision that, uh, that John had that started in chapter 4 and goes through chapter 5. Um, and it really kind of connects the, the situation of the churches that we talked about in chapters 2 and 3 um, with the execution of God's plan that we'll see starting in chapter 6. So there's sort of this little, it, it, it's a connection point between those things. And uh, the lamb <clears throat> who was slain is soon going to lead the way in uh, defeating God's enemies once and for all. And so there's a lot of really cool art that is, uh, you can find on the internet if you just type in something like uh, throne room, right? And uh, a lot of you know, different artists have come up with these different renditions of what they think based on the descriptions that you find in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, what you think that might, they think that might look like. And so I always think it's fun just to find one of those or two of those and put them up here just to give you another sense of what someone else's interpretation of that. Of course, they're all completely wrong, <laughs> I, I'm guessing. 
that it, you know, it looks nothing like this or nothing like what anybody else has conceived because, of, you know, the fact is, you know, Isaiah talked about the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so my guess is that it'll be nothing like what anyone has ever seen when we finally get there and uh, actually see it. But it's fun to speculate. So now let's look at uh, the text, Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. We'll have it up here. If you uh, don't have a Bible, if you do, you're welcome to turn to there and follow along. And so here we go, Revelation 5, chap chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. And when he had taken it, uh, it referring to the scroll that we just mentioned, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. All right. So that's Revelation 5, 8 through 14. So now let's kind of, as we've been doing, let's go through this and, and start to dissect it a little bit and start, try to understand what some of this language means because this is a part that people will get to and they're like, harps, bulls, what the heck is going on here? So we're going to try to help you understand that a little bit better. Um, so... When the lamb, well, first of all, we're at verse 8. So each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So when the lamb takes the scroll from the Father, the living creatures and the elders fall down before him in worship. Why? Because it's been stated. He's the one who's worthy to take this. No one else. And... Um, the, the, the Greek here, the way it's written, <clears throat> sort of suggests that only the elders are the ones that sort of hold these harps and bowls, um, which is really a fitting responsibility uh, in light of the fact that they perform this priestly function as representatives of all the people. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago, the fact that you know, these, the 24 elders really are representative of the people of God. And, you know, not hard to uh, understand, but the stringed instruments, such as harps, were often used to accompany songs of praise. So that was an instrument that was used uh, quite a bit. Now, what about this term bowl? Okay, well, bowl occurs 12 times in the book of Revelation, and uh, except for this one instance, whenever you see bowl in Revelation, it's always connected to God's wrath. Okay? 
This is the one exception to that in this particular verse where it says that they are filled with incense symbolizing the prayers of God's people. Now, I, I found a really cool description of this that I, I just want to read to you um, that I think might even help us as we, as we pray because, like I said, these bulls are supposed to hold the prayers of God's people. So listen to this. The symbolism lies partly in that the smoke is, as it were, the refined quintessence of the offering, partly in the ascending manner of the same. Now that's kind of a mouthful, but what they're saying is that the idea that the smoke is sort of the refined essence of the prayer and the fact that it's going up, that it's ascending, is what, you know, what sort of makes that even more like when we pray, right? We pray upwards to God and our prayers ascend. That the altar of incense has its place nearest to the curtain before the Holy of Holies <clears throat> signifies the religious specific notice of prayer as coming nearest to the heart of God. So you sort of think of this idea that as we pray, you know, our prayers rise up and God is breathing them in. And I think that's just a really cool way to think about, you know, when you pray and what's actually happening at the other end. And so it's then from this point that we learn that God's judgments are, are going to follow. And those judgments are at least in part a response to these prayers, right? Because people have been praying about this, uh, about all of this suffering and the persecution that's going on. And so that's what is being responded to uh, when this all starts to come down. So then we move on to verse 9. <clears throat> And it says, and they sang a new song. Now, is this the first time that new song is mentioned anywhere in Scripture? No. No, this is, uh, it's really throughout Scripture. Um, I think it's seven times in the Old Testament that, that a new song is mentioned. And generally speaking, people sing a new song when God is, has done something really impressive, some mighty or marvelous work. And that's when the people then gather together and they sing a new song. So it's always in reference to some sort of a redemptive or creative act in history. Um, and so here this song really celebrates the new things that God is doing in, in Jesus. The new things that he promised in connection um, with his servant in Isaiah chapter 42 in I'll just read that to you. It says in Isaiah 42.10, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. So you can see there's one reference in Isaiah to this, this idea of a new song. So we'll move on now to the latter part of that verse where it says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So this new song really contains three parts. It talks about the lamb's worthiness, the lamb's work, and then the lamb's followers, finally. And so from a worthiness standpoint, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, God was worshipped back in chapter 4 as creator. Well, now the lamb is worshipped as the worthy redeemer. 
of the creation. He's the one who can take the scroll and open its seals, which points to his role not only as redeemer, but as judge, right? He's going to judge as well. And and we talked about the fact that the lamb's worthiness results from his uh, sacrificial death, an image that comes to us from Isaiah where in Isaiah 53 it says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, referring to Jesus. So that's, that's the worthiness of Jesus, the reason why he's able to um, receive this kind of praise. The work sta- aspect of this is uh, if we use the language of the marketplace, we're told that Jesus purchased or redeemed a multi-ethnic people for God through his willing sacrifice. Every tribe, nation, tongue, etc. That's why, up on our wall over here, we have diversity as one of our core values. And I think that's really important because at a time when our, our secular culture is all caught up in an argument about, about whose lives matter, we as the church need to stand on God's word. And we need to proclaim the fact that we believe in Jesus and Jesus did not purchase for God only white people. And he did not purchase for God only black people. And he did not purchase for God only people who speak Chinese. He purchased every tribe and language and people and nation. And it doesn't get any more inclusive than that. And so by Jesus, by virtue of his shed blood, says that all lives matter. And as a follower of Jesus, they must matter to you too. If they don't, then you really can't be a follower of Jesus. And then verse 10 gets into this idea of the followers. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And so lastly, this song really celebrates the implication of the Lamb's work and who it was for. It was for his followers. And so there was a promise that we read back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 19 that Israel would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and that's now being fulfilled. And so God's people that were drawn from all of the nations now constitute a kingdom and a priesthood. And so all of these redeemed of God are now moving towards this complete dominion that God had planned as his original program for man. Adam lost it. But Jesus is the second Adam. And so he has redeemed and restored us to that original state that that Adam was at, but then lost through sin. And so what started with Jesus and his victory over sin, we are now promised to have increasing victories and increasing rule and dominion as we bring the gospel and law of the kingdom to fruition throughout the world. And we see that, right? We don't we see increasing victories. We don't see victory all the time, 
right? Every time we pray for someone, they don't automatically get well. But we see, start to see that happening more and more and more, which should give us even more impetus to pray for more people, right? It's kind of a numbers game, really, when you think about it. The more people you pray for, the more people have the opportunity to be healed. And then verses 5, 11 through 13. Uh, the voice of many angels, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. Um, really, not much to say about this other than the idea of this number is really just to symbolize a number that's too big to even count. Right? They didn't have, I guess, the concept of infinity back then, like we think of it, but this is supposed to express an infinite number of these creatures, right? This was the only way they had to really um, to signify that. And all of these creatures are worshiping, and it goes from the four living creatures to the elders to countless angels and then to every creature on earth. And what are they saying? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Now, when, when I started this series, do you remember uh, one of the things I said was that we are going to see a lot of sevens pop up as we go through Revelation. We've had a number of them already. Anyone want to count how many qualities there are there? Seven. Yeah. Honor, power and wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. There's seven, right? The idea is that it indicates fullness. The number seven typically indicates fullness when you see it in Scripture. And so those first four, power, wealth, wisdom, and strength, are qualities that the Lamb possesses. And then the last three, honor, glory, and praise, describe the response of the worshipers to that. And so... The Lamb's wealth points to him as the giver of life. And the Lamb's wisdom speaks of his cooperation with God's plan to offer salvation to the world through the cross and through resurrection. The worshipers respond by giving the Lamb honor and glory and praise. And now worship that's normally reserved only for God is now offered to Jesus as well. And then finally, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So now all of creation is worshiping God and the Lamb together. And as I said at the beginning, this remarkably unique relationship continues throughout the rest of the book where we'll see these two together. And the only response that these four living creatures can have is amen, and they fall down once again at the feet of Jesus. And so it's important, I, if I've said one word over and over, the word is probably context, right? Because none of this makes sense unless we think of it in the context of the people who were reading this or hearing this read to them, right? And we've just been through this the, these letters to the seven churches and pretty much every one of them talks about persecution in some manner and so the church that was there in John's day 
was in the process of experiencing persecution, and it was only going to get worse. And so, you know, what they were seeing, they could hardly believe. Because they're, they're, the, there's this union now between the nation of Israel and the anti-Christian beast of Rome, right? There's this joining together, in some cases, of, of these two things that, to many Jews, they could never have imagined those two things coming together and, and joining forces. And so these Christians at that moment, in, in looking at the, what was unfathomable to them, to seeing this thing that they never in a million years would have believed would come together, it was really important for them in that moment to understand that, that history wasn't ruled by chance or by evil men or even the devil, but was ruled instead from God's throne by Jesus. They needed to see that Christ was ruling right now. That he had already wrested away the world from Satan's grasp. And that even now, all things in heaven and on earth were bound to acknowledge him as king. See, and I, this is where you need to remind us all, especially, you know, in this whole political season. You know, probably several of us could see, could, could make the statement that we could scarcely believe what we're seeing on television right now, right? Um, and so it's important for us as well to understand that history is not ruled or determined by a single election. It's not going to be ruled by whoever is, is elected the next president. We've got to keep things in perspective and understand that it's God seated on his throne that is in control of things. And so we all, both the people that John is writing to and ourselves as well, we, we really need to see ourselves in, in a true light. And that is, we're not forgotten troops fighting out in some lonely outpost where we're fighting a losing battle. We need to see ourselves as kings and priests already. Identity, hello. Where we are waging war and we're overcoming and we are predestined to win. There's a victory there. And there's an absolute assurance that we are going to conquer and have our high king over all the earth. And so both the people in that time that are, are hearing John's words and to us today who are hearing John's words, we need to have and hold on to this biblical philosophy of history. That all of history created and controlled by God's personal and total government is moving inexorably toward the universal dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this new and final age of history has arrived and, and the new covenant 
has come. And we can all say, behold, he has conquered. So let's look now, uh, as we have been doing, in what does this kind of mean for us, you know, in this day? Over and above what I really just talked about in terms of sort of that perspective of history that I think is so important. <clears throat> and I think, first of all, it's back to this idea of worship. And remember I said a couple of weeks ago that the whole book of Revelation is largely about worship. So you, you see this theme coming up over and over again. And so, first of all, worship is our response to what God has already done for us in Jesus. See, we're delivered from something, and we worship in response to that. And so, because Jesus did the work on the cross and is now worthy to take the scroll and to open it, that in return calls for universal worship on our part. Worship is always to be a response to what God has done rather than some way to like ramp up our emotions or generate faith in some way. And you may have been to churches where you've seen that. You know, people get all foaming at the mouth crazy during worship, and that's great if it's sincere, right? If they're sincerely, if that's all being generated towards God as opposed to Look how wonderfully I'm worshiping. I'm really spiritual. Because I'm dancing and waving a flag. <laughs> See, I think as creatures, we're sort of designed to be dazzled by things. And, and I believe every one of us can share an experience of, uh, of being touched very deeply when we witness a spectacular sunset or a sunrise. I think the people who, even someone who doesn't regularly watch sports but has been watching the Olympics, um, can express nothing but amazement when you see Simone Biles do her gymnastics routines or you watch Usain Bolt run. I mean, it's just like blows your mind that human beings can do that. And there's probably all of us that, you know, at one time or another, some piece of music has moved us to such an extent that there, there was no other response than to stand up and applaud. And so, you know, all of us know what it means to just kind of sit back and go, wow, that's amazing. And I think all of those little bedazzled moments or sort of signposts, if you will, that are pointing us to that ultimate awe-inspiring experience of worshiping the God of creation, the God who created all of this, the God who created Simone Biles and Usain Bolt and all of the other athletes that can do those amazing things, the God that makes the sunrise and the sunset every day.
Okay. Well, since the second point's not a mystery, we'll just move on to it now. <laughs> Jesus' work on the cross has radically changed our status. And, and I think this sort of illustrates this idea that people are important to God. That you know, Jesus has redeemed all people, every tribe, language, people, nation. And so, in that sense, we're all the same. But in a different sense, we retain the uniqueness that we were created with when we become Christ's followers. So, there's a, a similarity in all of us, but it's not a mechanical, you know, sort of everyone's like a Stepford Christian. <laughs> right? It's, it's the fact that we retain that uniqueness and that we're, we have our free will and so forth. But we're united because we're all members of this same kingdom. And so I think when we face ridicule or rejection from the world, we need to understand that we are God's prized possession and we are extremely important to him. And we have a lot of significant work to do as priests of God. And that it's so important that our significance comes from our standing before God rather than what the world thinks of us. See, we're back to identity again. Because if you're confident in that identity, then what the world thinks of you, you don't really care about. You don't even think about. Because you know exactly who you are. One, um, one pr well, it's been a play. I actually was fortunate enough to have seen this on Broadway, and then I've watched the movie as well. But it's uh, uh, Les Miserables was based on the novel by Victor Hugo. And if you're familiar with it, you may recall the scene that sort of, it opens up with this really sort of a vagabond, dirty, um, bedraggled person who's sort of curled up on a, a bench on a, a French street corner. And uh, he looks so bad, he looks dangerous. And, you know, all of the townspeople who he's been trying to get, you know, something, food, shelter, something, all sort of snub him. Now, a little bit of the backstory is he's been in prison and he's just been released from prison. This is the character Jean Valjean. And then finally, he's slumped over, he's in complete dejection, and, and some kind passerby points him to a place that he can go uh, and find some refuge. And so he goes to the door and knocks, and it turns out <coughs> that this is where the town's bishop lives. And uh, the bishop is, is pretty startled by this late-night stranger that comes, but uh, he listens to his story, and he finds out his name, and he learns that he's been a recently released convict, and it's been marked by the authorities as being dangerous. But the bishop, nonetheless, welcomes him into his home 
and serves him dinner. And then in the middle of the night, despite the fact that the bishop has been so kind to Jean Valjean, he double-crosses him. And Valjean remembers this wonderful silver spoon that he had used to eat dinner with. And so he sneaks around to the dining room of the house and he takes all of the valuable silverware that he can find and stuffs it into this bag. And this kind of metal clanking against metal awakens the bishop who comes and confronts Valjean and when they meet face to face, Valjean knocks the bishop out, leaves him on the floor, and escapes with this knapsack full of silver. Well, the following morning, the bishop's domestic servant is just in a tizzy about the fact that all the silver's gone. But the bishop really doesn't seem to care. He says, well, so we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything else about it. Shortly thereafter, the uh, police appear at the bishop's house and they have both the bag of the stolen silver and they have Jean Valjean in handcuffs. Well, the bishop looks deeply <clears throat> into Jean Valjean's eyes and he says, I'm very angry with you, Jean. Turning toward the authorities, he asks, didn't he tell you he was our guest? Oh yes, replies the chief authorities. After we searched his knapsack and found all the silver, he claimed that you gave it to him. Stooping in shame, Valjean expects the bishop to indict him. He's going back to prison, he's sure. But then the bishop does something amazing. The bishop says, oh, yes, of course I gave him the silverware. Then he looks intently at Valjean and he says, but why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Did you forget to take them? The bishop orders his domestic servant to hurry and fetch the candlesticks while the authorities stand there dumbfounded. They ask, are you saying he told us the truth? The bishop replies, of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I am so relieved. The authorities immediately release Jean Valjean, who is, by, is understandably shocked by this sudden turn of events. And the bishop thrusts these newly retrieved candlesticks into Valjean's knapsack. And once the authorities leave, the bishop drops this heavy bag of silver at Jean Valjean's feet. And after peeling away the hood that is covering his face, the bishop looks sternly into the eyes of Jean Valjean and orders him, don't forget, don't ever forget that you've promised to become a new man. 
And Valjean you know, doesn't know what to make of this. And so he's, he's trembling. And he makes the promise. And with all the humility he can muster, he says, why? Why are you doing this? And the bishop places his hand on John's shoulders as he blesses him. And he declares, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you <clears throat> from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. It's the perfect picture of what Jesus has done for us. With his blood, he bought our soul. He declares that we no longer belong to evil. He ransoms us from fear and hatred, and he gives us back to God in the way of a restored relationship where we can once again enjoy fellowship with our Creator. Jesus' work on the cross radically changes our status. And finally, worship is transformative. The seven churches that we talked about in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 faced a lot of pressure to conform. If you remember, it was one thing or another. They were to either to conform to the imperial cult, the worship of Rome, or uh, to take part in these um, trade unions that worshiped all sorts of other gods and so forth. Now, some of them just refused to do it, and they encountered a lot of rejection and persecution, and some compromised. And if you're going to overcome in this world, you have to do so with the knowledge that it's God that's in control. And, and what worship should do is to transform us, to give us this kind of a heavenly perspective. Knowing what the final outcome is should give us the strength to persevere in the current day. And so as we celebrate, you know, what God's done, then our faith grows stronger. And then it transforms us, and we go even deeper, which results in even more praise and worship. And so I think what this phrase or what this um, passage sort of does is it's a caution against making our relationship with Jesus a little too casual. You know, yes, he considers us to be his friends. But he can't be reduced to our private God tasked with meeting every demand that we lay before him. He's the Lord of Lords who is enthroned with God the Father and who is worthy of the worship of everything. 
And so by making worship a priority, worshiping God, something that we know that we, we need to do, it, it sort of helps us to avoid drifting into that, uh, that thought process of thinking that Jesus is there to serve us. Because that's just an unspiritual fantasy. So finally, just to, to close out today this, with the kind of the main idea of this, this message, and that is that, that God and the Lamb are worthy of our worship because it was they who have devised and are now accomplishing this plan of redemption for all of us. Well, we are going to, uh, to have a time of communion now. And uh, so let's pray. Father, we, we just turn this time over to you. Lord, I sense that you're doing something right now in this place. And so I pray into that whatever it is, whether you're touching a heart or renewing a sense of faith, whatever it may be, Father, we just praise you for it and we just join with you. Become humbly now before this table where we have the chance to once again acknowledge the sacrifice that was made on our behalf to realign ourselves with you through the sharing of this communion meal where we come to you and we confess those things that we know are not right in our lives and turn from them and move forward as new creatures, new creations. So we recall that on the night on which Jesus was to be betrayed, that he took bread. And he asked his father to bless it. And then he gave it to those who were seated at table with him and said, take this, all of you, and eat, for this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of you.